0: I was a Marine from my 19th birthday until just after my 25th, and I was the type of guy who never shot a gun. How many of you have never shot a gun? (laughs) Okay. I won't ask who owns a gun. (laughs) So a few of us have, have fired weapons. I never did. But when I was in the Marine Corps, one of the things that I thought remarkable about modern warfare and weaponry is simply the potency of it. It is extremely accurate and powerful. When they gave us an M16 rifle, they trained us how to hit something the size of a dinner plate 500 meters away with open sights. And it's, it's, it's pretty remarkable. They gave us machine guns that would shoot 10 bullets a second. That's 1,600 bullets a minute. When you watch a, when you watch a movie and you see these guys shooting bullets and nobody ever gets hit, that is a complete joke. When you're, when you're dodging 600 bullets a minute, um, it's, it's like a, a rain of, of bullets. Bombs, they can, can literally come right into the middle of a campfire and have a kill radius 20, 30 meters. You start to realize really quick that you are just one person and your skill as a Marine is not a, a whole lot of use. If you're in the wrong place at the wrong time, you're just not gonna make it. That's just the nature of modern warfare. It is powerful exceptionally accurate and powerful. So what makes modern warfare scary is who controls it. Because if somebody controls that power and they are not a friend but a foe, well, then things get really dicey, things get really scary. It's not the power that is scary. Rather, it's the one who controls the power, who directs the power, who uses the power for their particular ends and purposes. In the Bible, we know ultimately that all power originates with God. There is no power that can be in our world that God has not first created and to some extent uses or regulates. So even the world is kept together by his power. The elements are created and sustained through his particular work. Look with me Luke chapter 12 and verse number 4. Luke chapter 12 and verse number 4. And I say unto you, I say unto you, my friends, be not afraid of them that kill the body, and after that have no more they can do. But I will forewarn you whom you shall fear. Fear him which after he hath killed hath power to cast into hell. Yea, I say unto you, fear him. As great a power as modern weaponry is, as great a power as modern dictators hold as they rule with sway over militaries, Jesus said that is not a power to fear. The power to fear is the one who can cast a soul into hell, the one who can eternally separate a person from heaven. The power of God, To determine an eternal destiny is incredible power. The foolishness of men deny this power. The wise recognize it and fear it. But one thing that helps us to work with this power and understand it in a better way is simply the goodness of God. Look with me in verse number 6 of Luke 12. Are not five sparrows sold for two farthings, and are not one of them, and not one of them is forgotten before God, but even the very hairs of your head are numbered? Fear not ye, therefore, or ye are of more value than many sparrows. So after telling us of the incredible power that he has as God, he then tells us that we're of more value than a sparrow, we who have an eternal soul. We who are created with a likeness to him, we who can see him, know him, and, and appreciate his, his power and his glory, are we of not of more value than them? And he's telling us the hairs of our head are numbered. Now, some of us, that's more than others, but the hairs are numbered. And he's telling us that you have a father that, though powerful, loves you. And so God's power is always wedded to his love. He is not a self-absorbed dictator, detached and uncaring, unconnected to the people through whom he is working. He is a God of power and he is a God of goodness. Now that power is always connected to goodness. And it's important to remember that the goodness of God is intrinsic to every other attribute or characteristic of God. So whenever you think of God, you think of his holiness, you think of his his omnipresence, you think of his limitless knowledge, and you think of his power, only through goodness can you understand the characteristics of God. So whenever you think about God, whatever his characteristic is, whatever characteristic he he reveals of himself through through the Bible... That can only be understood through his goodness. His goodness is present in every one of his characteristics. In the midst of omnipotence, unbridled, unlimited power, there is always a sense of what is infinitely good to you and I. Now the Bible tells us that that power is good in every way. In Psalms 107 and verse number 1, O oh, give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good. For his loving kindness is everlasting. Look with me in Psalms 31 and verse number 19. Psalms 31 and verse number 19. How great is thy goodness, which thou hast stored up for those who fear thee, which thou hast wrought for those who take refuge in thee before the sons of men. In Hosea 3.5 he says afterward the sons of Israel will seek seek the Lord their God and David their king and they shall come trembling to the Lord and to his goodness in the last days. Do you realize that you cannot even trust God if your faith is not aware of his goodness? But without faith is it impossible to please him? For he that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. He is one that does good. He is one that works in. He is one that helps and lifts those who are seeking him. So faith is is intimately aware always of God's goodness. So whenever you trust him, there is always rumbling around somewhere in your mind the idea that he is good. It's part of the reason why you trust him. So if you ever doubt his goodness, there is no faith. As a matter of fact, without a sense of his goodness, without a sense of knowing and experiencing the fact that God is good, it's impossible to even know him. As soon as we doubt the goodness, we spiral into a path of rebellion, sin, and apostasy. Always we know that he is good. As a matter of fact, God uses his goodness as a summation of all of his other attributes. Every other characteristic is literally wrapped in it. <clears throat> the Bible says in Exodus thirty-three nineteen, and he said, I will make all, my, all of my person, all of my attributes, all of who I am, I will make my goodness pass before thee and will proclaim the name of the Lord before thee. God told Moses, when he told him he would pass in front of them. So he is all powerful and good, all knowing and good, all loving and good, all holy and good. The only way that I can ever relate to him then is to perceive goodness. When you see something with your eye, you're actually seeing light that is reflected. So where there is light, whether it be photons or waves, it, it, it bounces off of a surface and you see the reflection of that light in the receptors in your eyes your eyes put together those those impressions into pictures into what you're actually observing sends it down your optical nerve your brain interprets it what's happening but if you take away light you're blind without light you can see nothing you only see what light reflects in a black room, things can be around you, but you cannot see them, of course, until the light is turned on. In the very same way, God can be before you. God could be present and God can be working. But I cannot see him without goodness. There is no light. I can't perceive him. Goodness is what enables me to perceive his nature, his person, his work, his actions, his words, his guidance. What he's doing in my life. What he's doing in the world which is around me. It is only perceived or known through a perception or understanding of his goodness. He is the source of all that is good. The Bible says in Psalms 16 and verse number 2. O my soul, thou hast said unto the Lord, thou art my, my Lord... My goodness extendeth not to thee. Literally he's saying, goodness is not arising within me and going rising to you. You are the one who gives goodness. You are the Lord. The Bible says in James chapter 1 and verse number 17, Every good gift and every perfect gift cometh from above and cometh down from the Father of light, with whom there's never variableness. There's no shadow of turning. And the sense of constancy, the sense of, of a, a fixed purpose is rooted in his goodness. In other words, he's saying God is good and he never varies. He never turns. He has never anything but goodness to you and I. Without the Lord, there is no goodness. Have you ever noticed that in, in the world when you take the Lord away, what arises? Barbarity cruelty, wickedness. It's almost funny to watch atheists in the West as they begin to debate the virtue or value of atheism. And yet, the very atheism in which, which they espouse is founded upon Judeo-Christian principles. It is the principles that a great God has given to you and I, and they practice their atheism in the midst of those principles, but remove those principles and place them in a foundation without the teaching of God, without the laws of God, without the presence of God, and their atheism very quickly devolves into cruelty and barbarity. Atheism produces abortion. Have you ever thought, how could we have abortion? In 2019, as much as we know about a baby in the womb, at six weeks its heart is beating, five weeks sometimes. The brain waves, I mean the incredible pictures of a baby. How could you do that? The barbarity of it. That's atheism. That's what atheism does. A few months ago, a few weeks ago actually, there was a seventeen-year-old girl who had a difficult situation early in her life and she depressed it. She got permission from the dutch government to euthanize to euthanize herself she was she actually was put down by the government a 17 year old girl that's atheism take god out and you lift the goodness out of your life out of your world and you enter into a world of cruelty a world of selfishness a world of ugliness there was in marley park friday night saturday night and Tonight, there is a concert of these rap singers where God is not present. And you look at the the profanity, the vulgarity, the stabbings, the rapes, all of these things that go on in concerts around the country. When you lift God out, my friend, you lift out the goodness that is present in our world. Psalm 73, turn it with me real quick. Psalm chapter 73. When we turn from God, we turn from his goodness. When we turn to God, as we experience him and as we know him, we begin to enter into goodness. The perception, the experience, the benefit of that goodness becomes very present in our life. But when we become very earthly minded, in other words, where the Bible is not what is guiding us. We may come to church and we may entertain spiritual thoughts. But let's say we weren't having devotions. And let's say we were evaluating life based on what people we work with think. Evaluating life with what we're seeing on YouTube. Evaluating life with what our family, maybe back home or here, are saying. And that's kind of the way that we're basing it. That's kind of where we're at. Did you know that if you evaluate life that way, in other words, if you define goodness by the way that the people around you define goodness, then you will miss the goodness of God and literally crush the faith that God gives to you and I. In Psalm 73, in verse number 1, it chronicles Asaph and his journey to goodness. He begins and ends with goodness. He says in Psalm 73:1, Truly God is good to Israel, even to such as of our a clean heart. He said, So God is He's good. He's good to those who love Him, who are pure, holy, and righteous. He is good. Now, if God is good, then that means we will experience prosperity, right? I mean, if God is good, I'm going to be healthy. I'm not going to be sick. I mean, if God is good, I'm going to have some money, right? I mean, if God is good, then I'm going to have these benefits in life. And the fact that I'm good, I'll have them, and the wicked won't have them, right? If I'm good, I mean, if I'm experiencing goodness, and God is bringing goodness to me, then It'll be seen between me and them because God is the source of goodness, right? And therefore, if they have goodness, well, well, something's not right. I mean, if they're rich and if they're not troubled, they're secure and pride encompasses them. Wait a minute. I thought God was good. What is going on there? What he says in verse two, but as for me, my feet were almost gone. My steps had well nigh slipped. Asa is admitting his understanding of God, misunderstanding of God's goodness is ruining him, literally destroying him. He's trying to define goodness at this low point in his life by the way that his culture, the people around him, are defining what is good. He says in verse 3, For I was envious of the foolish when I saw the prosperity of the wicked At we at least Lot was vexed with the conversation of the wicked. But Asaph, on the other hand, seems to envy the wicked at one point in his life. He seems to say, look what they have. And he's aping for it. He's saying, I want what they have. I want the nice car. I want the big house. I want the big bank account. I want the big holiday. And I'm a Christian. And I'm serving and I'm giving and I'm active. And they have those things and I don't have those things. And God, you must not be good. They have it and I don't. For it was envy at the foolish. There was envy when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. There are no bands in their death. Their strength is firm. They're not in trouble as other men. Neither are they played like other men. They're powerful. They don't have a problem paying their bill. They don't have a problem with the hospital building that has come up. They don't have a problem with a lack of protection or a lack of security in their life. They have power, prestige, pleasure. Therefore, pride compassed them as a chain. Violence covereth them as a garment. Their eyes stand out with fatness. They have more than heart could wish. He's literally saying as a chain circles your neck. Pride surrounds them. Violence that arises out of their pride is something that's on their back, close to them. He's saying that they're arrogant, they're cruel, they're taking advantage of other people. He's starting to come to a sense of consensus here, a sense of understanding. Verse 8, "...they're corrupt and speak wickedly concerning oppression." They speak loftily. They set their mouth against the heavens. Their tongues walk through the earth. He's saying all of these men of the world seem to have all that the world offers. In our language, they've got the boat. They've got the privileges. They've got the positions. They've got the power. They've got the clothes. They've got the jewelry. They're encompassed with pride. These are the wicked. They speak against heaven. Therefore thy people run hither, and waters of a full cup are wrung out of them. And they say, how doth God know? Is their knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the ungodly who prosper in the world. They increase in riches. He's like, what's going on? I live in a world of greedy landlords, of money-hungry politicians, of taxes that seem to rob most of what we make. He said, I feel like a towel that has been wrung out. These are the ungodly who are prospering. These are the ungodly who have goodness in their life. And it just doesn't seem fair, Lord. Because I'm a Christian, I'm following, I'm doing right. And the ungodly have the benefit. Verse 13, Verily, I've cleansed my heart in vain, And wash my hands in innocency. What good is it? For all the day long have I been plagued and chastened every morning. He's looking at the goodness they have, and he has come to a point of being totally frustrated because it seems so unfair that he is walking with God, seeking to pursue God, but in fact... He is confused and deceived. He is evaluating life by the value of the world. And Satan is the prince of the power of the air. He so easily reaches into your eyes. He reaches into your heart and he begins to tell you that this is a value. This is a value. This is what makes you a person of substance and importance. It is what you have. It is what you're experiencing. It is what you're doing that makes you a person of worth. He has mistaken the prosperity and the pleasure of what these men are doing for the very goodness of God. He's starting to see it's like on a morning where there's a heavy mist and the sun begins to burn it off and you begin to see what is behind the mist and he's beginning to see that what he thought was goodness was nothing but crass materialism what he thought was good and something to be desirable was nothing but empty arrogance that God ultimately would judge. What he looked at and what he saw and was aping for was so far from the sense of goodness that he feels ashamed at having been so deceived. He says in verse 17, until I went into the sanctuary area of God, then understood I their end. He says, literally, I came into God's presence came among the people of God. It's interesting that he uses the sanctuary here because sometimes in our private devotions, sometimes in our own personal meditations, we can get a bit warped, a bit twisted. But when you rub shoulders with other believers and you start talking about what you think and what you feel, you start to know where you're a little drift, a little off, where you're not quite where you should be. So he says, I went into the sanctuary of God, And among the brothers I have in the Lord, and sisters, among the people of God, I began to see and understand what's going on. Their earthly success is not what is of value. He begins to look then at prosperity in in the light of eternity rather than human goodness. And the godless point of view that accompanies that. He begins to comprehend and understand. Surely thou didst sit them, verse 18, in slippery places, thou castest them down into destruction. How are they brought into desolation as in a moment? They are utterly consumed with terrors. As a dream when one awakeneth, so, O Lord, when thou awakenest, thou shalt despise their image. He's like, whoa. Whoa, wait a minute. You mean sometimes God can use wealth as a courtroom? That sometimes God actually makes men very rich because when they're rich, they can do whatever they want and their heart is revealed and their culpability before God is revealed. God allowed the Assyrians and the Babylonians to become very powerful and very rich, but he held them accountable For the way that they treated his people. And the very same way, sometimes God will use a lot of wealth to bring things out in people and cultures and societies. And that becomes a basis point of actual judgment. You see, we become so wrapped up in idolatry. We so crave what the world is offering that we miss the purposes of God. And sometimes God can allow his people to be very low, so that they begin to find what is truly good. So he's saying here, he sets them in slippery places. This is an awesome thought. I remember when I was in Ireland, and uh, everybody in my family owns a house. They're all homeowners, every single one of them, except for the ones who are in ministry. Um, But all the ones who are not in ministry all own a home. And so I have an Irish background. And so not own property, that's like a big deal. I mean, to not own a house, that's that's like a, a major thing. And I remember being here in 2007 and 8 and watching houses go for millions and all of this other stuff. And even now, as things go really high, and I remember looking at this and feeling so frustrated that, God, I'm the one who's fasting and praying. I'm the one who's tithing and giving to missions. I'm the one who's doing this. And they're the ones who are prospering. They're getting rich, and I'm getting poor. And then I started to realize well, maybe the way that I'm viewing goodness is wrong. And maybe what I'm saying is good is really not good. And maybe what I'm saying is bad is really not bad. He says in verse 21, Thus was my heart grieved. I was pricked in my reins. So foolish was I and ignorant. I was as a beast before thee. So he's saying that when you judge life by how much you make, when you judge life by what other people view, by your handsomeness, or by the clothes that you wear, or all of the other things that the world judges it by, when you say that's what goodness is, then you're like a cow in the field or a pig in the pen. You're like a beast before him. You have no more sense and no more understanding than an animal does. Verse 23. Nevertheless, I am continually with thee. Thou hast hold me by thy right hand, thou shalt guide me with thy counsel word counsel, and afterwards receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but thee? There is none on the earth that I desire Beside thee, my flesh and my heart faileth, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. He begins to see that not only is the goodness of God something which illuminates his future, his presence brings a goodness that enraptures his present. He knows that the goodness of God is what truly is good. And when that goodness is present, he is fulfilled. He has what he needs. If he is right with the Lord, then he is right. If he is blessed by God, then he is blessed. If God is in his tomorrow, then he has a future regardless of what other people say and regardless of how it turns out in the eyes of the world. The nearness of God the intimate fellowship with God was his highest good. Do you remember when Job went through the testing? And do you remember when he, as he begins to come out of that, he begins to say none of it mattered. The relationships, really. All of these other things that I put so much emphasis on, it didn't matter. What really mattered was the Lord, that I knew him. I was in his presence and I was right. With him, Do you remember Paul, his sufferings? He's, he said it brought him nearer to God. Do you know the chastening that God sometimes brings into our life where he takes away things? He can take away health. He can take away other things. But if that brings me nearer to God, it's brought me nearer to true, pure, and perfect goodness, which is in my life. Have you ever noticed, sometimes when people go in the hospital and they become ill, that they say, God is good. They go through a a really difficult chemotherapy. They beat cancer, maybe just barely. And they come out of that and they say, well, God is really good. And you're saying, what are you talking about? You've gone through chemo. You've gone through a horrific experience ordeal. How can you say that God is good? Because God stripped away everything else. You thought all of the other stuff was good. I thought all of the other stuff was good. But when he takes all of that away, you find out what is really good. So when God takes your health, when God takes your money, when God takes everything else, he stripped away everything else that we were relying upon, everything else that we thought we had to have because that was good. And we find what is truly good in our life and in our world. The goodness of God... Is a character trait which touches every other attribute that he has. His righteousness, his love, his holiness, it is all wrapped up in his goodness. And if I have a sense of that goodness, then I have a sense of who he is, a sense of his goodness, a sense of his worth, and what he defines as right, then I have what is truly good. All of us know Romans 8 28. We know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to His purposes. So not everything in our world is working together for good, but God takes it and brings it to be good in your life and in my life. So what can we conclude about the prosperity gospel? What about preachers who say that if you're right with God, you're going to be healthy. And if you're not healthy, it's because of sin. There's preachers who say that. What about preachers who say that if you're right with God, you're going to have some money. You're going to have some wealth. You need to trust him. You need to get right with him so you have wealth. Are they not as a beast before him? Do they not judge the world as a beast, judges the world? A cow who has his food, a cow who has a warm sun over his head and water in the pond is happy and so men, when they've got a full belly, when they've got a warm house, they're happy. Do you see? It is not the material. It is not the position. It is the Lord. And if I know him and I have his blessing in my life, then I am rich. I am blessed by Almighty God. And the prosperity preacher, preachers of the good life are simply amplifying the carnal desires of their hearers to gain off of them. Paul said that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed unto his death. Quickly, the goodness of God is part of salvation. In other words, the word gospel means good news. And everywhere we go, we see that God is drawing us through his goodness. We have sin and God is good. He gives salvation. He gives the forgiveness of sin. Romans 2 and verse number 4. Or despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance. So salvation reveals in a very clear way that God is good and what will truly satisfy and truly make you happy in this world. Psalm 34.8 eight says O oh, taste and see that the Lord is good blessed is the man that trusteth in him so when i sense god's goodness when i am filled with praise when there is a sense of gratitude for to god for the way that he is working for the things that he is doing for the way that he is providing when i sense his movement when i see his labors and i praise him for that i've gotten into his goodness I'm, I'm, I'm partaking of his goodness. I'm experiencing it. I'm responding. I'm reacting to his goodness. But when I become complaining, when I become dissatisfied, when I say, I want this, and God, why haven't you given this? And God, I, I want to be here, and I want to partake of this. And there's that sense of discontent. Are we not also saying, God, you're not? good. You're not good because of where you've placed me, because of what you've given me, because of where I find myself today. Lights have various color temperatures. Photographers will sometimes use filters on their flashes or on their lights um, in order to affect the color temperature of the light so it matches the light which is around them. And when we don't sense god's goodness it's like a filter it filters everything about what we do with the lord it blocks out part of the color part of the goodness of god it then becomes hard to see him and know him did you know when satan attacks you the goodness of god is what he will go for look with me real quick in romans i'm sorry genesis chapter 3 verse number 1 do you remember eve she's in the garden. She's in Eden, a place that is perfect, a place that God has provided for. Every need is met in Eden. There is no lack, there is no want. The serpent is more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? So he's beginning to say, well, What's going on here, Eve? Is it really good? I mean, is it really what's good? Verse 2. And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. And the serpent said unto the woman, You shall not surely die. What is he doing? Seemingly innocent question. But is he not undermining Her sense of God's goodness, her sense of fear, her sense of reverence. She perceives that God is good. And out of that, there is an awareness of his other characteristics, his other attributes. God's holding back on you, Eve. For God doth know, verse 5, that in the day that ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened. And you shall be as God's yourself. You'll be as God's. You'll have what he has. He's denying you. He's saying you can't have this. He's not good. You don't have this stuff that you want. You don't have the position. You don't have the place. You don't have the power that you want. He's not good. And as soon as he gets you to think that his will is not your highest good, that he is the one who will provide, that his purpose and his way for your life is the very best use of your life, the moment you begin to doubt that, the moment you begin to think that you're going to find goodness in disobedience, that you're going to find goodness in selfishness, that you're going to be better off disobeying, have you not said God is not good and his way is not best? Do you see that once he begins to get you to doubt his goodness, he opens a door to rebellion, further sin, and ruin in your life. The idea that God is good is foundational to everything that you do in your spiritual life. He is good. And when he is working, he is good. And when he is denying, he is good. And when he brings hardship and he brings difficulty and he brings problems, he is still good to you and good to me god never holds back what is best how many times have you gone through things in life and god said no he said no nope, nope 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 and you said no come on god please 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 he said nope 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 he's constant in your prayer and you know he said no and you did it anyways and then you're like man he was right how many times has God said to do this and you said, oh man, I don't know. It takes a lot of faith. But God's leading you to do this, to partake of this, to step out. Maybe it's a missions offering. Maybe it's an area of commitment. Maybe it's a part of your life. Maybe it's an idol that needs to be released. And God is leading you to release it because he is good. And he's bringing good Into your life. You see, God is always good. And God can be trusted in the way that you raise your children. God can be trusted in the sacrifices that following Him bring. God can be trusted in the hardship that sometimes accompanies a devoted walk with Christ. We can trust Him because He is always, always, always good. And finally, God is easy to live with. Far from noticing every transgression and forgetting humanity, far from ignoring righteousness and focusing on our faults, God is so forgiving. He is so loving. He is so long-suffering. He is so good that his goodness, it completely um, overwhelms every other concept of goodness That we enter, entertain. In other words, God is so good that what I thought was good is nothing compared to that goodness, and that's what Asaph discovered when he evaluated the world by what other people said was good. He was empty. He was crushed. But when he recognized the goodness of God through His presence, through His work, through His guidance, through His provision, both here and eternity. He found what is truly good. And therein, he found a life of power, a life of satisfaction, and a life of fulfillment. God is good, infinitely good. So no matter where he's placed you, no matter what he's given you, no matter where you find yourself today, he is good, and he is working, and he will produce good. The thing that you and I must always do is to always remember, sumo sumo bonum, (laughs) I'm slaughtering that one, Sumum bonum, the chiefest good, all that emanates, all his decrees, all his creation, all his law, all his providences, there can be none other than good that comes out of them. So God is always good. So as you go through life and I go through life, he's good. I was talking with a brother on the phone the other day and he said, it's all good. I thought about that. It's kind of a quaint little saying, it's all good. But it is. (laughs) It is all good. I mean, if you're a Christian and you love the Lord and you're following him, it's all good. All you got to do is obey him, follow him, trust him, walk with him. And it will be good. And he will bring good into and out of your life. Let's pray. The heads bowed and eyes closed.